0: The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time.
2: Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Also great to have my co-hosts here, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We will be tackling one topic today that uh, both Elliot and Phil uh, have been doing a lot of work uh, into. I think it's going to be very interesting. So let's kick it off uh, with you, Phil. Great. Thanks, John. So,
1: my interest in the,
2: the housing industry,
1: and this, this pertains pretty exclusively to the US housing industry and, and home builders, distributors, suppliers, that sort of thing, um, actually goes back to the housing crisis when I was just kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, and had to figure out what was going on as a green, young, fresh out of school analyst when I didn't know anything else. And uh, I, I've followed it ever since. It's, it's a fascinating industry, it's one of the biggest industries, particularly by employment. In the US, so it really matters. And I think it's on a lot of people's minds right now for good reason. So I thought that's why we tackle it this week. So, my my big picture uh, analysis of what's going on, if you go back to that period of time, you really kind of need to look at the the supply cycle of of how we got here, as well as the macro environment that led up to it. So, we, we had this massive period of overbuilding starting around 2000, leading up to the housing crash in 2007, where we just built way more housing stock than we could possibly use at that time. And it was fed by the, the speculative boom that, that was going on at that time. But because it crashed so hard and prices came down so quickly, and there were not buyers to absorb it on the back end of that, and there were just houses sitting empty in a lot of, in a lot of markets, we had a pretty big underbuild then from 2008 really through today, uh, kind of concentrated in the years of roughly 2010 through 2015, when there were just very, very few homes getting built. You know, a, a normalized level of demand would be, you know, depending on what assumptions you want to put on it, you know, the high hundreds of thousands of new homes per year up to maybe 1.2 at the very most on the on the high end of, of new homes per year. And in the, in the lead up to the crisis, we were building a million five. And after the crisis, we were building four or 500,000. So you can see how much this swung around. I mean, the Delta really was about a million new homes per year. And instead of the Delta, that should be like kind of a a safe level. If you just built a straight line based on demographics and based on the aging of the housing stock, that's kind of where you'd want to be within maybe 10% variation, not a hundred percent variation. But so now we find ourselves in this weird situation where we're undersupplied in a lot of areas. And you have this generational shift where for a long time, uh, people born in the 1980s into the 1990s kind of deferred forming households and they deferred single family home ownership in favor of renting, particularly in multifamily buildings, particularly in the same set of kind of core urban markets. And then, of course, COVID came in on top of that and just threw everything into the blender. So now we're sitting here with this weird situation where you've had this massive shift toward single-family housing, particularly away from dense urban areas into suburbs and into cheaper, smaller cities. But you have this massive shortage in the labor market where you really never had Enough skilled tradespeople come back into the industry after they all got laid off involuntarily in 2008, 2009, 2010, and you know obviously that's true of lots of other industries that are also similarly constrained by labor right now. But it's a particularly acute problem right now in in the housing industry. I saw this amazing video actually just this morning um, that was taken earlier this week. Um, you know because of the seasonal factors in phoenix where it gets so hot in the summer you really want to build build as many houses as you can early in the morning and later in the or in over the winter and at 11 a.m on a monday in march which would be like the prime time to build anything uh just row after row after row of empty homes that had been framed up but had absolutely no one working on them there were just materials stacked everywhere because there was absolutely no labor available to, to finish building these homes. And, you know, the kind of the joke runs right now that you have, you know, four bedrooms, three baths and zero garage doors because you can't get that last piece of the supply chain. And that's another thing that's happening right now is the supply chain is stretched so thin it's broken in a lot of places. You have lead times stretching out to three or four months, sometimes as long as six to eight months on things like appliances or kitchen counters, or windows and doors, really basic stuff that you can't live without when you're building a home. You also have commodity inflation, something we've all seen uh, recently. Lumber last year went on a a rip-roaring journey that would have made the GameStop stuff look relatively simple in some ways. It it was just insane, and it's really difficult for both home buyers and for home builders to, to deal with that volatility. It creates a lot of disruption. You have land pricing, it's becoming an issue too. You don't have a ton of availability in a lot of the markets that need it. And it can be very expensive and very time consuming to get those models built. You also are getting now to a point, we're going to touch on this uh, a little bit more, where the math starts to become really difficult in terms of making an investment as a home builder or even as a build to rent investor, because the price of land, the price of entitlements, the price of getting a house actually built from scratch gets to be pretty stretched because what you'd need to charge for it to make any sort of margin prices you at such a point that very few people can afford it. And so speaking of, this is probably what's gotten most people uh, thinking about it lately, is we set an all-time record low in January of 2021. So just over a year ago, about 15 months ago, where the average 30-year fixed rate mortgage was at 2.65% in the U.S., As recently as December of last year, just four months ago, we were at 3.11%. We're now about 4.5%. So you know, to put it in dollar terms, I mean, the the monthly payment, just principal and interest on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, let's say it's a $400,000 mortgage. Just from an article I was reading about this this morning, they laid out the math for you. It was about $1,700 in December. It's now well over $2,000 and probably closer to 2100 almost at this point and so an increase of three or four hundred dollars a month you know I mean you're talking about tens and tens of thousands of dollars of added costs over the full life of that 30-year mortgage but even just the simple shock of 300 dollars a month I mean that, that is a big hit to, to many people's budgets and, and really starts to price in some difficulty in, in getting across the finish line in, in, in closing homes. Um, A couple of other interesting factoids out there that I think are worth considering and worth debating as we look at where this is all going, you're going to have kind of a double-edged sword in terms of demographics, where it's pretty unlikely that over the next 10 years, you're going to have a ton of population growth in in the U.S. Immigration, of course, is the great wild card, but uh, new births are, are kind of They don't swing around a ton year to year, obviously, COVID notwithstanding. And there was very, very little population growth in the U.S. over the last decade. So as you start looking forward to 10, 20, 30 years from now, that starts to have pretty massive implications. And Zellman Research, whose work I would actually recommend, I've obviously been more than my fair share of critical of sell-side research firms over the years, but they're one that really stands out on the good side for for generally doing great work. And uh, they actually have a thesis that look, you know, things may be good right now in a lot of these markets, but by the time you get towards the end of this decade, call it five to ten years from now, maybe just five to seven years from now, you're really going to be overbuilt again in a lot of these markets if these trends continue. And oh by the way, we may run into an affordability crisis before then. Um, another interesting thing to consider is that investors are now about one third of all existing home purchases. Uh, that didn't really used to be the case. I mean, they used to be relatively small, but right now you only have about two thirds of home purchases being completed by owner occupied purchasers. So people are actually going to live in the home and own it. Whereas small investors, these are people that just own fewer than 10 homes. Uh, you know, it's a relatively common side hustle for lack of a better term, or a relatively common small business for people that make it a full-time occupation. And they're about 25% about 27%. Then you have these large investors, uh, firms like Blackstone um, that really didn't exist in this market uh, five or 10 years ago. They're up to 6% of the market. I mean, so the combination of the two is about a third of all homes are not owned by the actual occupant. And so the, the rental market in single family has been increasing and I think will likely continue. Um, another thing to consider is just the repair and remodel market. I mean, really think about home building. You get a pile of dirt, you start from scratch, on you go. Um, But I think there's probably a pretty significant runway there for the next call it five to 10 years, even more so than there will be just in in single family housing starts. If you believe in the thesis that we're not gonna hit uh, an affordability wall and, and new builds are gonna continue. Either way, it should benefit repair and remodel to a certain extent because a lot of these homes, I mean, the average housing stock in this country, I believe, and I I tried to confirm this this number and I I ran out of time before we jumped on, but I think it's about 30 years. Um, There's a lot of old homes out there that need some repair and remodel. You're also hitting the anniversary of, you know, call it 10 to 20 years from being built, when a lot of homes enter this prime window for remodel. And as someone who did this to our kitchen about two years ago, I can confirm that and tell you all the painful stories from it. But, you know, a lot of homes hit that 15-year mark and you know that's when they start to need some pretty significant repair and remodel work, and that coincides with the boom that ended around two thousand six, two thousand seven, right? About fifteen years ago. So that that could be a really interesting uh, area to explore as well. And so I'll stop there and kick it over to Elliot, but I, I have some more factoids and thoughts for once he gets through with his. Part yeah. As well. So
0: you know the average housing stock is. Almost 40 years. That's one of the things I had yeah. ready. It's 39 right. years. And in my I know area, it might have been I,
1: going up and well into the 30s. So,
0: yeah. And by region, it varies considerably, right? Where I am in the Northeast, it's decently older. Uh, the area sure. I live in, it's closer to 60 years. And, wow. um, you know, that has consequences in various ways. Um, and the land availability is a lot less. Um, I think it's really cool that we coalesce around the same topic. It's both timely and it's important. Um, I first encountered this paper, Housing is the Business Cycle, by Edward Leamer after Bill Miller spoke about it on Bloomberg. I can't even remember. I think it must have been like 2012, 2014, somewhere in that time range. Uh, and I've spoken about it on this podcast before, so I won't go into it too deep, but it's basically making the argument you can attribute every expansion and recession to the directional trends in housing in the post-World War II era in the US. It's been really important because there's a big multiplier around housing to other Activity, economically speaking, right? You buy a house. You're going to buy a car, probably, if you're a first-time homeowner, and you're going to furnish it, and you're going to employ a lot of people to do various services for you around making your accommodations comfortable. Um, So that's very, very important um, to just have a general sense of where housing is going. If you want to have a sense of you know what's important for the economy. And around that, there are potentially some really interesting investment opportunities. You could look at some of the housing-related sectors that have been pretty beaten down right now. Um, and so just this weekend, I had a tweet, and it was my most viral tweet in a very long time. And I asked, is there a better inflation hedge than a 30-year fixed mortgage taken during ZERP? And you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, right? The 30-year mortgage uh, is about actually like 4.67% today. So that's 2% above where it was when 2021 started. So that feels like a lifetime ago, but it wasn't that long ago, kind of crazily. Uh, really does feel like a lifetime ago. Um, and this is the swiftest rise since 1994, I saw, according to a Wall Street Journal article. But at the same time, it's also merely back to 2018 levels. So it's not like we're talking about levels the economy hasn't pushed through, Since the great financial crisis. And in that sense, you know, in some ways, the economic backdrop today is more constructive than it was in 2018. So you could ask, like, well, is skill housing? I don't know. A lot of people anchor to where things were recently, but also, you know, which recently are you talking about? Um, And prices have gone up considerably since 2018. So affordability is definitely down, and I'll get to that. You know, I I won't go too much into the inventory uh, levels, but I think Phil made some great points on that. You know, they've gotten incredibly tight. So, you know, when I think about housing right now, there's so much of this on one hand, on the other hand, and there's a big tension that's going on. And I like thinking about these areas because you never know what ideas it might prompt. Um, So you have incredibly low supply versus rapidly declining affordability. Affordability today is the lowest it's been since the great financial crisis, right, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's still more affordable than it's been pre-GFC for most of the post-World War II era, when you measure based on a 30-year fixed and the average income of a household. So one of the other problems is that people with houses who locked in a 30-year fixed uh, over the last several years, today, the prevailing rate is 1.2% above the average 30-year mortgage outstanding. And what that means is if you are in a house today at the prevailing 30-year rate and you say, hey, I'm going to move to the same-priced house anywhere, you're going to be paying a lot more, right? 30% more or so on. Um, So that means people are locked in uh, golden handcuffs in an economic sense, right? They're locked in unless they're willing to pay more or have some reason to have to move. Though on the other hand, you know, there's still... A lot of the incremental demand has been coming from first-time homebuyers, and there's been more first-time homebuyers right now in this current landscape than there's been in over a decade because the salaries and balance sheets of millennials and household formation have been you know, mostly prolonged for various reasons, and, and it's finally happening for real. Um, so you have this headwind meeting this tailwind, and who knows which wins. And then, you know, rates are rising, but the 30-year fix is still pretty low in the grand scheme. And you have this pool of investors coming in, which keeps shrinking supply. Um, And the investors are sensitive to something different than they are to the uh, financing cost of a home. They're sensitive to where rents are uh, in comparable terms. And rents are rising as swiftly as the cost of rates. So like the spread that they're able to earn hasn't really changed very much. So the calculus, the math that they're doing, you know, it's still very much intact. Um, and then you know when you look at the home belt, home builders and you think about them, there's so many questions that could go either way too. So it's a in theory, better business model that's less reliant on land banking, uh, more reliant on these purchase options for land. But at the same time, if you owned a land bank and the cost of everything's going up, you know that's pretty good for your margins if you bought it, you know, before the cost of everything went up. And it might have some value that's realizable in a very different kind of way, uh, but also, you know, maybe if there's a slowdown, you like the fact that these uh, companies are more reliant on options and they're less beholden to holding the bag during a prolonged downturn in housing. And then, you know, one of the other forces I think about a lot is rising home prices in the coastal areas, in particular, fuel net migration to the Sun Belt, um, and as does household formation. Right, so you have older people retiring in this great, uh, what do they call it, the mass resignation or whatever. And they're you know moving from New York to Florida. Um, and there's a big shortage of homes in the areas people are moving to. And so the affordability and absolute level of a house in Florida might be more expensive today than it was just six weeks ago, but it's still much cheaper than it is in the Northeast. And, you know, all these considerations add up to an aggregate housing market in our country. And so there's a lot of tension. And I think there are interesting places that we could go with this. So that's my my preamble. And we could uh, open it up from there.
1: Yeah. One of the things I think that's worth revisiting that I didn't hammer home enough, which I think you made a good point on right there, is that cost of living really matters. And I think as much as people love to come up with other explanations as to why people move or why people do what they do, it's that the vast majority of the time, they're rational economic animals. And it became so expensive to live in certain cities that it just wasn't sustainable for most families to do that over long periods of time. So in a lot of ways, I view this great reshuffling or whatever you want to call kind of the moving that you've seen during COVID, which has not been crazy by any stretch, it might be, but it's kind of a long overdue reset in the one-way market that drove these really extreme uh, prices in a, in a lot of the coastal markets, as you said, in some of the big cities. One thing I worry about, because I think you put it perfectly, which is just that it's it's always an on the one hand, on the other hand analysis in this industry. And I guess that's true in, in almost every business, but it's, it's very true in this point. There's almost always conflicting factors at work here. And what stuns me about all this is you're right. I mean, if, if you really wanted to move from New York to Florida, there's a cost of living benefit. But that benefit is starting to erode rapidly. And as housing prices continue to go up, you know, forget about interest rates. I, I can't forecast interest rates with any accuracy. But you can look at just the simple math of where people can afford to live. And if they truly have the ability to work from anywhere forever, there's an obvious cost of benefit Cost of living benefit to moving to cheaper markets. But I'm starting to look at some of the prices that are prevailing in some of those Sunbelt markets that you mentioned. And it just doesn't work for a lot of these places anymore. So I'm starting to wonder how much longer they have to run.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a tough thing to figure out entirely because at the same time, you know, it's still the base is just higher here. So you're rising at the same rate off of a pretty uh, different base. Um, but there's a degree of arbitrage, I guess. And I think you made a good point with some of the work from anywhere. There are definitely were some people, especially in our industry who kind of used it as an opportune time to, to make a move I, for various reasons.
1: And I will say I'm willing to stick my neck out on, on one big prediction and this, I guess two, one is that I think repair and remark repair and remodel, uh, demand has a, has a pretty significant tailwind for the next several years. Almost regardless of the macro environment, I mean, obviously, big shocks to the economy could derail that. But I I think pretty much regardless of which way the wind blows, repair and remodel looks like it it has enough going for it that that it should be able to do pretty well. The other is that in the next, call it three to six years, you're going to see a massive wave of regret at the top end on some of both the second home purchases you've seen where people were just panic buying. A vacation home, a mountain home, a lake home, whatever. Um, in in two thousand in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, just to escape whatever living situation they have. Because I think people forget how expensive, how time consuming, how how difficult it is to maintain a second home. It works for a lot of people. I don't think it's going to work for a big chunk of the people that kind of dove into that market head first and didn't really think it through. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well.
0: Yeah, and you know, that area famously does not have a lot of liquidity. So when things turn, they turn. But one yeah. of the things that you got to wonder too is what happens to pricing, right? So that was one of my big takeaways from the Lemur paper, which is that housing corrects through a slowdown in transaction velocity, not through lower prices. Like prices tend to be sticky, even if affordability changes or things move, right? You could grow into a degree of affordability. And to the extent that people have really good mortgages that they've locked in and perhaps refinanced. Like I moved into my house in 2012 with a three and three eighths and I was able to refinance to below three last year. I never thought when I moved in that I'd ever refinance, but it's like, well, now I'm stuck. Um,
1: Well, that's actually another good point. I, I should have mentioned this earlier too. Being stuck, I think, is a huge part of this housing market. And I think you could safely describe the current housing market as pretty dysfunctional and And I don't mean that in the same way that the 2006-2007 housing market was dysfunctional, where you're just driven by rampant speculation, all financial-oriented speculation, just crazy stuff happening. I mean, it's dysfunctional right now for, for two reasons. One, primarily, is that if you're in a decent situation, it's really hard to do anything about it, right? Because to your point earlier, if you sell that's great. You'll sell your house in a hot minute and you'll probably get a great price for it. And then what are you going to do? Because you're going to be in an extreme seller's market for anything you then have to turn around and buy. So what does that do? That just restricts, that restricts supply even further, which drives inventories to all the way down to where they are, these rock bottom levels, which drives prices even higher. On and on we go until something starts to undo that positive feedback loop. And the other reason it's dysfunctional is just the extreme amount of supply chain uncertainty and, and labor shortage that you, that you have right now, which just doesn't, and, and combined, uh, you know, also an important factor is you still have a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard uh, zoning and local regulation, which allows some, you know, I think most people from both sides of the aisle would agree. You, you need more good affordable housing stock in a lot of markets and it's just not getting done because the kind of the legislative process is, is dysfunctional. So I think those factors Particularly the concept of being stuck, like you mentioned, Elliot, is a is a huge deal right now.
0: Yeah, and I should caveat that I'm happy to be stuck. Like that was partly by design. Sure. No, me too, but in a good way, right?
1: But there's lots of people where they're like, you know, boy, it'd be great if we could trade up from our two-bedroom apartment to a four-bedroom home, or we'd like to trade up from this house we bought when we were young and didn't have kids up to this bigger house now that we have a bigger family or whatever. And, and those are tough moves to make right now. And it's not helping the overall health. You'd like to have a more liquid, healthy two-way market, right?
0: Yeah. And historically, the situation of people being stuck is bad for the job market because it doesn't facilitate um, you know, changing locales. Oh, for sure.
1: And, and that's another, I don't know how we've talked about this several times. I don't know if you guys have changed your opinions at all. I think now that people are getting, quote unquote, forced back into the office. It'll be really interesting to see how it happens. But I still remain pretty skeptical that if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s and you work in an organization of any size, that it's going to be more difficult than a lot of people believe to maintain a fully remote virtual only uh, presence in a market that's really divorced from where everyone else is, right? So I, I just... You know, it's, it's not to say anything negative about the up and coming smaller and mid-sized cities, particularly if they have some cost of living advantages. I think they're probably in a good spot. But I mean, these people that think they're going to live on a remote island or, you know, on a beautiful mountaintop somewhere and just be totally disconnected. I, I, I don't know. I, I think the whole thing's due for somewhat of a reset in that regard in the next couple of years is hopefully we get COVID behind us.
0: Yeah, I see signs that that's happening already, right? And that has consequences for the housing market because I do think some people were expecting a greater degree of flexibility, though that's not For there. sure, for sure. And all these questions, they just, at the end of the day, inevitably raise more questions, right? And I think that's what makes housing so interesting right now um, because if you could you know, get comfortable with any degree of like what steady state is of demand is, right? I, I read the Zellman paper too. Uh, She and her shop do fantastic work and it's really interesting. It's uh, got a lot of questions that it raises for me. You know, one of the big forces behind demographic headwinds was a major change in immigration policy over the last decade. So it's not just about people having less babies. And it's like, that's something that could be reversed with policy going forward. And we still have the shortage that exists anyway. So, you know, how does that resolve? and part of it is not just a shortage it's like a mismatch between people where people want homes and where homes are um, so how does that tension resolve?
1: yeah there's some of that I agree that that's an interesting tension to resolve. I don't have anything like a, a reliable prediction for this, but I you know think probably the most likely outcome is you'll see a relatively healthy outcome in the sense that, The housing market is big enough and important enough that the economic factors that need to come to bear will eventually win. Now, we've seen long periods of time, like I said, two thousand three to two thousand seven, a little more than that, was just total insanity, right? I mean, things were just totally nuts. And then on the back end of that, you know, we bought our home in twenty ten, and there was nothing on the market then for different reasons. And for a couple of years there, it was it was pretty crazy. And you know, now we're seeing. Uh, The number I saw uh, just yesterday, I think, was uh, at least 65% of all homes that have sold year to date here in 2022 had more than one offer in writing on them, right? Lots of homes. If it's at all well-priced, good condition, good location, et cetera, are receiving multiple offers. So you get a lot of bidding wars, which gets pretty crazy too. So I think some combination of higher rates, reduced affordability, uh, we'll we'll sort we'll start to put a damper on things, and you'll see some reduction in this frenzied behavior you've seen over the last couple of years. Again, I think there was a very legitimate reason for people to feel somewhat panicked during COVID, at least at the early onset of it, when you were probably living in closer quarters, you didn't feel like you had enough space, you didn't have enough outdoor space in particular, and people just wanted out of that situation. And I can I can totally understand. And I think as that starts to reverse to um, hopefully, you'll see a little bit of return to normalcy. There's already signs. I, I was looking at some data on this, preparing for this this morning, that inventory may have finally uh, stopped declining, hopefully, at least. I mean, the numbers were really staggering. I think from roughly the third quarter of last year, 2021, through early March of this year, inventory was declining like 20, 25%. Week over week on a or or year over year on a weekly and monthly basis, right? I mean, there's just a huge reduction in homes for sale, right? I mean, at any given point, you'd probably see a million plus homes for sale, and you were at like half that level uh, coming into this spring selling season. And homes that would normally take in a healthy market maybe two or three months to sell are selling in one day. And there's just nothing of any, you know, reasonableness sitting on the market. So I think as that stuff starts to normalize. That will help. I, I don't know that anything is going to normalize on the supply chain this year. I don't think anything's going to normalize on the labor front for even longer, right? I mean, it, you, you can't just quickly mint a new crop of carpenters and plumbers and electricians uh, and skilled skilled tradespeople of all kinds. It's just going to be really hard to, to rebuild that labor force, and it may not happen. So that's going to be a, a force to reckon with.
2: How do you guys look at the uh, investment implications of, of all of this? And uh, I haven't looked uh, much lately, but where are valuations uh, these days in, in the housing space? Yeah, I'll start
1: with a couple of thoughts without giving any firm recommendations. Everybody, I think at this point, probably knows how I feel about um, not issuing investment advice in this forum. I want everybody to to do their own work and, and hopefully find some value in these comments, but I don't want to have anybody uh, losing money if I'm wrong about any of this stuff, that's for sure. So uh, I, I'll say this, for the for the public home builders in the US, which are, you know just to frame, give you a frame of reference, I believe they're up to now, I wrote this down, about 42% of all new home builders. So those are the big publicly traded builders um, like Lenar and, and Horton that you guys probably know. Um, that are out there that you can all look up and do research on. That's up a lot. They've consolidated. It was about 30% before the financial crisis, but that still leaves obviously more than half of the market is supplied by smaller local private builders in one of those categories. So, um, but what I will say that it's pretty obvious from the data is that uh, home builders, the public home builders as a group, have by far the strongest balance sheets they've ever had in their history. So when and if something unexpected comes along and home building demand dries up overnight, they will not be facing anything like the prior stresses they've had. They may still have stresses, but their balance sheets come into this way better than they've ever been before. Gross margins are also probably, I didn't go back far enough to say that they're at an all-time peak, but they're certainly high. Uh, Whether you're buying them then at peak margins is, of course, the key question, because um, as we've mentioned, you're just facing massive amounts of pressure, both on the price and availability of raw land. And, and by the way, the, the decision there as to whether to buy that land recourse or non-recourse on balance sheet and use and or use options as a financing strategy has enormous implications for your returns on capital. But they're also just seeing extreme pressure on every other cost input. So uh, I would be cautious at expecting any further margin improvement, to say the least, and, and there could be some some meaningful margin risk there uh, over time. Like I said, I think the repair and remodel market has some really interesting uh, ideas and, and opportunities. And I also think that as I look for, I made a list actually of kind of winners and losers from this whole thing. You know, if you're a, If you're a low price, kind of an entry level home builder or supplier involved in that market, That, to me, seems like it would have a better chance of doing well than, say, the opposite end of the spectrum, which would be like a super luxury vacation, second home kind of market. Manufactured housing is really interesting. Again, it's a different business, a different model, but has obvious appeal to it. If you're an at-scale distributor or supplier, uh, in particular, the types of distributors that can add a little bit of value, either because of their scale inherently, they offer... Purchasing power that can be passed on to customers in the forms of lower costs, or you know, a lot of them are actually are, are lagging into labor-saving and efficiency-generating uh, technologies. Either building things off-site and delivering them more uh, prefabricated is the wrong word, but more ready to go, requiring less labor on the job site is always a good thing. Um, technology with efficiency benefits is is real and it's here to stay, and I, I mean by that both volumetric, uh, prefabricated, actually modulated uh, home building uh, materials and products and stuff like that is, it and, and and by the way, the, the technology that builders can use to plan the job and, and architects can use to spec things out and home designers can use to pick finishes and that kind of stuff, it's all very real. And I think the labor shortage uh, and the commodity price spikes that we're seeing just increases the value of those technologies. So I think those are obvious winners as well.
0: Yeah. You know, you make a lot of good points there and a lot of the things I've been thinking about, I, I too think margins have uh, peaked and some of them are being clear about this. So when you think about it, right, it takes some time to build a house. And if every month the value of houses goes up, home prices is going up between when you break Ground and when you finish uh, completing a house, if you haven't sold it already, you're you're kind of like your inventory is appreciating as you're going. So that's supportive of margins. And to the extent that you've had banked land, um, where you purchased the actual underlying land years ago, uh, and the value of land's going up, you get a nice margin uplift in that. And one of the so so that's like the negative side of margins. But there is a positive side to having sold a lot of banked land. As, you know, more than a couple of home builders are pursuing that asset light business model transformation, uh, and you referenced this, Phil, the balance sheets are way better at the home builders now than they've been, you know, at any time in the recent past. They have a lot of liquidity. Um, and, you know, that's a big part of why I've been thinking about housing. I think some of these things are interesting. Like if you get comfortable with where, uh, like the next 10 years, with what the next 10 years of housing demand lo- looks like. Um some of these home builders look pretty compelling. And I do agree that lower end housing, you have the best income trends for your customer base. Um, so these questions about affordability, you know, still, I think it's something like the average 30 year fix is going to um, like a 720 or higher FICO score. So it's not like these people are truly, exp- these customers are truly exposed to um, the 30 year fix to the same degree as other. Uh, brackets of the the housing market are, it's more about the ability to earn. Um, and I think that's very helpful and very supportive because you've had rising uh, wages at the fastest rate as we've had in, in, in recent times. Um, so I'm totally on board with that. Um, and yeah, this is exactly why I've been looking at this topic.
1: Yeah. And John, to answer your question more directly, I wasn't trying to totally punt, um, but it's just, it's it's tough. As you look at the publicly traded U.S. builders, I think you can make an argument on either side. I, you know, I just pulled up a couple of them right now as we're talking uh, on Bloomberg. If you look at them on a price to book basis, which, again, is a very imprecise valuation shortcut at best, uh, particularly as more and more builders have at least partially started to copy NVR's uh, model of optioning their land rather than owning it, which greatly improves the balance sheet efficiency and the returns on capital. Uh, but they're on a ten-year basis, which is probably the shortest period of time with any reasonableness. Uh, they got pretty beaten up, and, and I, you know, it, with the benefit of hindsight, pretty cheap there for for a few minutes in in March and April of 2020, uh, and then just took off like a rocket ship, and then have pulled back to a certain extent here in 2022, back to what would be kind of the midpoint of a price price to book, you know, multiple you know, over the last decade, to the extent that that's at all helpful. And on an earnings basis, I mean, they look very optically cheap. I just would caution people that, you know, if you see some single digit multiple of earnings, that may not be very helpful as you start to evaluate what kind of benefits you're going to achieve as a long-term owner of the partial owner of the business. So um, look, I, if, If the economy, the macro conditions, the company performance are all good, I think you'll make a case that a lot of them are going to be very attractive investments. If bad things come along, you know, they're obviously not. So I I wish I could give you a better answer than that. But I think that's about as precise as I can get at the moment, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, these kinds of cyclicals do tend to peak with very low PEs, So that's not necessarily the perfect way to look at it. Um, and you made all the right caveats on price to book. Um, and you, before mentioned, you know, one of the nice things is when, when price to book's been this low in the past, they've had a greater degree of leverage. So the risk in it was, was on a different dimension than it is now. That's fair.
1: Yeah. So I, like two of the biggest U S public home builders, I just pulled up and on a 10 year, uh, trailing 12 months price to book, they're kind of at like the 80th percentile of where they've traded. Over the last ten years, that's all because they pulled back here in in 2022. They all came into the year trading, you know, considerably higher—you know, 120 percent of historical average on that basis. And you, you make a good point, though, Elliot. I mean, look, you know, book value is full of flaws, particularly here. But the the book value that you have is more reliable now, given that they're in a lot of ways deleveraged. Some of these businesses have a little bit more diversified business models. They've taken on other other streams of income that are not quite as cyclical or partially offsetting the cyclicality. Uh, they have higher returns on capital. In a lot of cases, they have gotten more efficient. I think what will be most interesting to see in, in some of their cases, it's going to be hard to move the needle for the really, really big guys. But some of these builders are starting to make really smart investments in labor labor-saving technology. Um, and technology that just makes them more customer-friendly. And and by customer, I mean both their subcontractors and the end home homebuyer. Uh, and that'll be really interesting to see if that can pay off over the next few years. I'd be pretty optimistic there.
2: I guess what, what I'm wondering about or what gives me pause is just kind of whether the rapidity with which the 30-year mortgage rate has gone up uh, this year has been digested or whether that's still uh, to come. I think I read somewhere that um you know it it's gone up like 50% if you can look at it that way um in a in a very short period of time and the last time that had happened was Q2 of 87 which I don't know yeah. if it's true but
1: I think that's about right. I mean this is probably the biggest payment shock on a short-term basis you've seen in 35 or 40 years uh which is you know it, again, I, I'd be more worried personally if I were buying a home right now about the core attributes of the home and less worried about how much mortgage rates have gone up in the past three months or four months because no doubt they've gone up a lot. I mean, as we said earlier, they've gone from well below 3% you know, a, a year and a, a year and a few months ago to about 3% at the beginning of the year to now four and a half. I mean, it's a huge jump and it's, it is a payment shock. And I don't think it's been fully digested, but in a weird way, I think it's also causing psychology to spiral in favor of the seller because the buyers are out there. There's no inventory on the market. Everybody, I'm using air quotes, everybody knows rates are only going to go up from here. So holy geez, I better lock in this purchase right now. Right. It's driving almost some panic buying in that regard. And and you know, housing is still a very seasonal market in the US. I mean the months of March, April, May, and June are very, very important. And I think it'll be really interesting to see, <clears throat> To see, but um, to your point, John, I don't think there's, uh, and there's lots of articles. I mean, you'll read kind of breathless news coverage, like, oh, there's such a payment shock right now. This is the worst in 40 years. People are getting smacked around by this, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and there are predictions that like, if the mortgage, average mortgage rate hits 5%, everything's just going to go to pieces. I don't know. Maybe that's that's possible. I suppose, but there are a lot more homes getting four offers on the first day they hit the market than there are anything else. So,
0: yeah, I think that's a powerful point—the behavioral element of it, where especially, you know, when the narrative becomes rates are going up and they're going to keep going up, and you didn't buy a home yet, you're like, oh god, I better buy it before they go even higher. Um, That's right.
1: Yeah, particularly if you have a family, right? Like, if if you are talking about, you know, where you're going to live with your family and, and you have a view and, you know, maybe the other person doesn't, how do you explain like, oh, I just want to wait and see what happens. And then you, you know, have this nagging thought that like, oh crap, what if I wait six months and rates are way higher, right? I mean, you're going to, to probably act now just so you don't look like
0: an idiot to your spouse. And there are some ways to track like forward purchasing intent, like pre-approvals for mortgages and people oh, are sure. actually still pretty constructive. Like the activities, sure. uh, Happening in advance of buying houses. And I think that goes back to one of the points I made in my preamble, which is by and large, like a lot of the housing, uh, the, the home buyers out there today are first time home buyers. And that hadn't happened for the prior decade. And they're motivated by very different rationale and life realities than are um, like movers from one house to another. And that has a very different impact on the levels of supply. Than does someone who's trading one house in a neighborhood for a different one. Um, So it all depends. Like, there's no clear cut answer, but I don't think it's you you know I think it's a bit myopic to say it's just the end of housing activity because there are a lot of other uh, elements that come into play.
1: To your point, though, John, one thing I think that could be interesting is let's say I'm right that it it, this jump in mortgage pricing is not going to be a huge negative factor for demand from buyers this spring. In this summer. But let's say the Fed really does raise rates four or five more times this year. Let's say the mortgage, the average 30 year fixed rate really does cross 5% at some point this year. And you really do soak up even more of that good housing demand now. What does that mean for next year? So it, it does seem entirely plausible that next year you might need to see a recalibration downward in prices. And I don't mean falling off a cliff like in 2008 or 2009 but you certainly could see a reduction of multiple bids a period of sideways prices a period of people having to swallow a you know a 5% discount from what they thought they were going to get or a bigger bid ask spread when people are listing and signing contracts contracts you know that that sort of thing would seem entirely on the table at that point for sure
2: and I'm wondering just um, whether rental yields are relevant in this and and would those need to come up at all from here? I think it depends
1: on who it is, right? I mean, I think if it's your, your small investor, your small landlord, I think they're probably more attuned to the practicalities of it. It's kind of what they know. They see it as a safe, stable asset. Um, they're probably less... Uh, sensitive to every tick in interest rates. Whereas, yeah, look, if if yields become really unattractive vis-a-vis other fixed in, other fixed income instruments, guys like Blackstone are definitely going to change their behavior. So um but look, I mean multifamily has been people have been speculating that multifamily or even single family rental year yields were primed for a great reckoning for a long time now and they've been awfully successful pretty much the whole time. And I don't see enough oversupply in any of those markets, uh, you know, or enough crazy speculative behavior in any of those markets to say like, oh yeah, this is kind of a, a bug looking for a windshield an accident waiting to happen. It just doesn't look that way to me.
2: Okay. Well, I guess we've, uh, examined this topic from, uh, many different angles. Thank you so much, guys, uh, for your perspective. And I hope this was uh, of value to everyone listening. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Till next week, take care. Goodbye.
1: Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at
2: moiglobal.com.